0: Hidley Hodley Podcaster, he knows. Welcome to the Khan Podcast, a fortnightly philosophy and nightclub podcast where I sit down with creative people unpacking their stories and philosophies for your personal growth and development. This week I had a very exciting chat with Colin DeYoung. Colin is a personality psychologist, personality neuroscientist, the creator of cybernetic big five personality theory. And the associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota. Um, Colin's work is something that I stumbled upon through doing a personality test myself and through Jordan Peterson, who was a student, or who Colin was a student of um, while studying psychology in Toronto. And yeah, this is an amazing chat, really interesting topics of personality, attention. Conscientiousness, uh, mental health, well being, and a fascinating insight into some of the mechanics beneath uh, personality traits and beneath our kind of normal day to day functioning. So, as always, if you like the content, subscribe on YouTube, follow along on Spotify or wherever you might be listening Stitcher, Google Podcasts, one of those places. Stay in touch, follow along on Instagram. Tell me you like the show. Tell me what you don't like, and I'll try and make it better for you. So, without further ado, here's my chat with Colin DeYoung. Oh. So, Colin DeYoung, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: So you're a, a, if I get this right, personality psychologist, personality neuroscientist. You're the creator of cybernetic big five personality theory, and you're the associate professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota. I hope I've...
1: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I'm... uh... In the psychology department here at Minnesota, and I'm also currently the director of our personality, individual differences, and behavioral genetics program.
0: Oh, amazing. Behavioral genetics is something that absolutely scrambled my brain when I started looking into it. It's a really amazing topic. Um, But yeah, today I suppose I wanted to kind of root our conversation particularly around attention and personality and bringing in the social media angle a little bit Maybe talk about dopamine. Um, but I suppose to start off with, um, I discovered the big five personality scale very recently through actually your Understand Myself uh, program that you made with Jordan Peterson. The um...
1: Oh, interesting. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so, I, well, just first to clarify, mm-hmm. uh, I have nothing to do with uh, Understand Myself. Oh, yeah? Uh, with that website yeah. uh, and, the, and uh-huh. the feedback that it provides. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, but I created the questionnaire that they use. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so um, I created a, a questionnaire called the Big Five Aspect Scales. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was uh, some work that I did uh, mostly as a, uh, as a graduate student and as a postdoc. Yeah. Um, and uh, the goal was basically to create a questionnaire that had a an empirically derived substructure for the Big Five. Uh, So what that means is so the Big Five are these broad personality trait dimensions and um, personality traits are uh, what we call hierarchical. They have a structure where you can talk about broad personality traits, but then you can break them down into narrower traits as well. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking about extroversion, for example, you can talk about that as a broad personality trait, but then you can also think about components of it like uh, sociability and talkativeness and uh, assertiveness and activity levels, so there are a lot of different narrower traits that you can um, you know decompose these broad traits into, and there are different instruments that are available for measuring the traits not just at the broad level but also at the narrower level uh, but most of those the set of narrower traits that are measured are not based on some kind of empirical finding Uh, they are based usually on um, just a kind of rational uh, derivation of what are the interesting specific traits of interest within each of uh, the broader traits Mm -hmm. anyway so one of the projects i was working on was actually trying to identify empirically some of these narrower traits within each of the big five and we found that there was uh, that there were two major sub dimensions within each of the big five and then uh, I wanted to create a questionnaire to uh, to measure that. Mm-hmm. And and so I did. And that questionnaire is actually in the public domain because it's part of something called the International Personality Item Pool, yeah. uh, which was a- initiated by uh, Lou Goldberg, uh, one of the wow. great personalities. Lou Goldberg, was, he
0: made the Big Five Personality yeah. Scale, didn't he? Or was it? He was Lewis Goldberg, I think. Well, was, uh,
1: there is no there is no such or, thing as a as the Big Five personality. Yeah, because there the are factor, many no. different Big Five mm-hmm. personality skills. Mm-hmm. Um, he was the person who first called them the Big Five. Right? so the yeah. interesting thing about the Big Five is that they're a scientific discovery, right? They're an empirical finding. Uh, if you have a sufficiently large collection of descriptions of personality, and uh, you factor analyze them, which basically means you see which ones tend to go together in the same people. You end up with these five uh, dimensions. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they were actually first discovered uh, a couple of times back in the 1940s and 50s uh, Mm -hmm. even. But at that time, people were working with much smaller sets of of items of questions um, just because the computer power was limited to do this kind of analysis. Uh, And yet, nonetheless, people had already discovered these basically the same five factors. Uh, And then Goldberg was really involved in as computer power got better, you you could start to analyze larger and larger sets of uh, items, questions, uh, and that led to increasing evidence for the importance of these five factors that he named the big five. And then he and other people have created uh, various questionnaire measures.
0: Yeah, and the the one I did actually was the one, I mean, the Understand Myself one with the multiple factors, like where you had like conscientiousness broken into orderliness and industriousness. um, And I found it just Mm -hmm. like I had never, it was a, a real revolution for me because I'd never thought of personality. I mean, I knew the word personality, but it didn't have any kind of meaning behind it in that sense. And it gave me this kind of a model that I could use for myself and for other people that was really useful in kind of explaining a lot of, behavior and traits in myself and um, definitely opened up. I wonder, was it as significant when you first encountered the uh, Big Five aspect or Big Five in general? Was it significant for you or was it something you were just kind of like, uh, I don't know, did it seem revolutionary?
1: (laughs) Uh, It's funny because I guess when I first encountered it as an undergraduate taking uh, psychology classes, um, I wasn't that Interested in it. Uh, There were other aspects of personality psychology that I found more uh, compelling Um, Mm -hmm. But then when I got to grad school and I actually started working with uh, you know working with data and uh, Doing science because uh, my undergraduate degree was actually not in psychology. It was in the history of science So I was more humanities oriented. I was studying sort of history and philosophy of science focused on issues In psychology and psychiatry, but more from, you know, a historical point of view rather than a scientific point of view and when I started actually working on this stuff scientifically, uh, then and, you know, and as just as I got more immersed in it, then I really started to uh, see the power of this kind of descriptive system like the big five. And mm-hmm. I, I always used to say that, like, by the time I got through a couple of years of uh, grad school, it was sort of like whenever I would talk to people, I would just have like a little bar graph in my head of like the five different <laughs> traits, you know. Um, (laughs) You know, measuring people's measuring people's traits. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, so Mm. it it wasn't quite as immediate. It wasn't like this sort of immediate revelation, but it definitely, uh, especially as I got more immersed in it, became something that I found really helpful in terms of understanding other people and myself as well
0: yeah and i i'm kind of upset that it's not more popular to be honest i've been like kind of an evangelist for it a little bit my own life getting people to do the tests and things like that i think it can be a hard sell to people maybe because they kind of treat it like a school exam or something everybody wants to pass or get like you know 70 percent or above and um it use i I think that's how people do it i think well some people that would be a lot of interest you know there's a lot Mm. I think yeah, there's sorry. a lot of interest
1: out there in the public in personality mm. questionnaires, you know, and in yep. uh, various, you know, all kinds of different ones. The ones that aren't particularly scientifically based either, like the uh, Yes, uh,
0: unfortunately more, I would say. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, probably those are more. Well, you know, they mm. have better marketing because they're not constrained by reality. They can say whatever <laughs> they want about them and it doesn't have to be scientific. That's <laughs> a great supported. point. <laughs> yeah. so that's good. For, it's good for marketing if you don't yeah. have to pay attention to what's real. Makes it a lot easier. Um, but, you know, so, and, and I think people genuinely want to know about themselves. I don't think that they necessarily approach these by, you know, trying to get the best score. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and obviously, if you are not as honest as you can be when you take a personality questionnaire, mm-hmm. it's not going to accurately represent you. And then you're not going yeah. to um, mm-hmm. learn much about yourself. Uh, yeah. Even, you know, and I don't think it's hard to it's hard to feel good about your personality if you know that you distorted it to make it look yeah. good. Uh, yep. Now, of course, people also, I think, accidentally you know, or subconsciously distort their personalities, but that's a different issue. That's more like uh, self-deception. I think generally, especially when it's just for, you know, when it's anonymous or when it's just for your own interest, that people generally do approach them trying to give mm-hmm. uh, accurate answers rather than just desirable ones
0: yeah and it's more efficient that way and doing them over time as well it's something i've always wanted to revisit to see kind of the changes and measure them kind of against each other but i suppose yeah for just because we could talk about personality all day i I really find it a fascinating subject but um just to narrow it down um so in terms of attention i wondered if you could say a little bit on the either the function of attention or how it connects to personality i i really wanted to pick your brain on that specifically um if there was anything, and then we can try and tie it in with the social media as well. Um, after, if that's okay. Sure.
1: Um, yeah, well, that'd be fine. Uh, mm-hmm. Social media isn't really an area of my expertise, but you know, yep. I have some sort of general thoughts about things. Um, yep. In terms of attention, so first of all, I should say like that's a pretty broad concept, uh, yep. even in psychological science. So mm-hmm. if we should make sure that we, you know, we both know what we mean by that and like what yep. we're trying to describe. When I think about attention, I basically think about the way in which uh, we allocate resources in our information processing to uh, Mm -hmm. specific phenomena in our perceptual field uh, in order to, you know, get more in depth Mm -hmm. information and and processing about them. Um, And it's sort of, you know, it's a it's a limited resource Uh, conscious. uh, We usually link attention to consciousness. And uh, what we are able to consciously pay attention to is a very small amount of information relative to all of the information that comes in through our senses at any yep. one time. So a metaphor that often gets used, it's as if you have like a flashlight and you can uh, you know, shine it on certain things. You know, Imagine there's all this kind of darkness or dimness out there. But mm-hmm. wherever you shine the light, then you can really see what's going on there and you can get it in detail as opposed to just kind of dimly. Mm-hmm. Um, And so attention is like this voluntary capacity to move that spotlight around uh, and to process small parts of uh, the world we perceive in more depth. Mm -hmm. Um, Is that the way that you're thinking about it? Exactly
0: what I'm thinking about in terms of prioritization and that there's, you know, prioritization of things that are salient to us so that the attention is kind of narrowing in and focusing, zeroing in on. In a complex environment with a lot of, you know, too much information to process, it's how we kind of split it up. Um, And I suppose then, yeah, in terms of the social media, which is monetizing attention or capturing attention, you had mentioned that it's a finite resource. There is a limited amount of attention. Um, And so I suppose, yeah, one of the big issues with the monetizing of attention is that if that's successful and a company completely monetizes somebody's attention, you don't have any attention to use for other things. And there's this kind of, you know, if it's done successfully, you're a very important resource is being depleted, basically, and um, is one of the kind of ethical issues with it. Hmm.
1: Yes, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I The way in which attention is limited, it, there are two ways in which attention is limited. Uh, one is that um there's only so much that you can pay attention to at a time. Um, and well, and actually, this, these two things are really sort of flip sides of the same coin, because then the other thing I was going to say is that it's you can generally really only pay attention to one thing at a time, uh, especially in detail. Right. So you might the more you split your attention and try to pay attention to two things, the less or three things or however many, uh, the less well you pay attention to any of them. You know this is why it's dangerous to do other things while you're driving for example you know you're on your phone uh, texting or whatever while you're driving driving is very practiced it's very automated and so we feel like oh yeah I can you know I can drive with only you know one eye on the road but in fact we're doing much less of a good job of paying attention if we're right. splitting our attention and so it's really just this issue of time so yes if uh, if We're paying, you know, if you're spending most of your time on social media, then that's time when you're not paying attention to other things. So, yes, in that sense, it's Mm -hmm. this kind of uh, finite resource. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you can Mm -hmm. capture people's attention, you can uh, you can own their time, essentially.
0: Yeah and I mean there's a big movement for the time well spent kind of stuff and making it more I suppose but the something I suppose I'm trying to get to here basically is the kind of the salience issue and I mean there's big aspects of marketing and the you like the kind of user experience of these things that are designed to be salient to us like the red notifications and the infinite scroll and that kind of stuff And something I wanted to touch on with you, which is like the changing of the salience landscape through technology. Is that something that I know you deal with personality change? um, But like, do you think that this type of technology will, through changing a person's salience landscape over time, change their personality traits? I'd heard you talk about the dopamine before or the dopaminergic system changes to it over time through characteristics can change personality traits. I wonder, is that something you see with this type of Persuasive technology.
1: Yeah, the big that's an question. question. So first, just to say a little <laughs> yeah. bit about yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Um, mm-hmm. Probably, <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm not sure how common it would be. But like here, let me mm-hmm. let me just describe what I'm talking about here because it'd be yeah. useful yeah. just for people who are listening to this to sure. hear a little bit about the way that I think about personality traits. 100. So mm. we all have these broad uh, tendencies towards certain kinds of behavior and experience Um, and there are some characteristics that basically describe people uh, differences between people in any culture anywhere at any time in human history you know so I'm sure like going back to uh, you know when there were people just you know like living in caves hunter-gatherers whatever uh, that some people were more outgoing and talkative and others were less, right? So, you know, extroversion would have been a, a, a relevant personality dimension at any time in her, human history. Um, some people would, you know, when you're sitting around the fire at night, I'm sure some uh, ancient people liked to argue and others didn't, you know, so argumentativeness would have been something that we can use to describe differences between people at any time in history. And so it's those kinds of universal distinctions between people, Uh, that are what I consider to be personality traits. And those broad tendencies are likely to be uh, influenced by various kinds of underlying uh, neurobiological processes. I mean, everything that we do is neurobiological, right? Because the brain, it doesn't matter whether it's your genes that influence something or whether it's your environment that influence something. They have to change your brain if they're going to change your personality. And so the brain is what's driving your behavior and experience and those patterns in it. Uh, at any time and so then we can think about like if we if there are these broad personality traits what are the underlying biological causes of them and that's where the neuroscience comes in um Mm -hmm. and then what are the kinds of factors that might actually shift those biological parameters over time and that's the kind of thing you're asking about like is it possible that um uh, you know, spending all of your time uh, on social media might actually change some of your brain parameters in such a way that it would have this wide influence on some of your broad personality traits, you know, now obviously it's changing your habits. And there's one way in which we can say habits are part of people's personality as well, because they're the things that they persistently do. They're characteristic of them. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, when we think about changing personality traits, it's a little it's beyond just changing habits because it's sort of changing these general settings. Uh, mm-hmm. And okay, so I guess you know, the question is, like, if you uh, do something, it doesn't matter what it is in your life, if, if you do something or if something happens to you uh, that causes you to get more uh, a- anxious about things or some or depressive or have less energy, um, if that persists over a long period of time, then that's part of your personality has changed just by definition because per- personality is a, is people's persistent tendencies. Um, so, you know, we know that personality cha- personality changes with um, with mental health problems and that when people uh, get uh, therapy of all different kinds uh, in as much as therapy is uh, effective, it tends to uh, affect personality. and. In the big five, it usually has the largest effect on uh, neuroticism, which just refers to the tendency to experience negative emotions, things like anxiety, depression, sadness, uh, irritability, all of those. Um, And so, you know, we know that people can uh, have their general tendencies, their general levels of neuroticism can improve over time. Um, And so, you know, they can also get worse over time. Now, I don't know, uh, like, to the best of my knowledge, there isn't good research yet that clearly shows systematic effects yeah. of social media use on personality. Uh, and I think that's well. For one thing, there are there are very few things that have been discovered where we can show that they have systematic effects on people's personality traits. Um, a couple of things that have been pretty well demonstrated at this point are uh, getting your first job and uh, getting into your first romantic relationship. Seems yeah. to be pretty clear that those. Uh, shift these broad personality traits, Mm -hmm. some of them. Um, But it's very hard to find things that have these kinds of systematic effects on personality, and that's uh, probably partly because there are a lot of things that have an effect on people's personalities, but have different effects for different people. So the effects aren't Mm -hmm. systematic. So that makes them harder to find scientifically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And social media is probably like that. It's probably the kind of thing that uh, for some people, it has a detrimental effect. For other people, it has a beneficial effect. For other people, it has essentially no effect on their broad personality tendencies, uh, and that makes you know that makes it that hard to study. Uh, doesn't, but you know, it's it's worthwhile because it's increasingly such a pervasive part of uh, human experience, mm-hmm. uh, at least in you know developed countries. You know, this the, the technical technological revolution of uh, of the internet. I'm uh, you know, just having this kind of like infinite supply of uh, information and interaction at your fingertips all the time in your pocket. Uh, you know, that's at least as big a technological transformation as like the invention of the printing press, you know, which had For when sure. things to read became easily accessible and widely distributed that had a huge effect on human societies. Um, But, you know, it's hard to when these changes are happening, it's hard to see and predict exactly what the changes are going to be. So I think we have no idea what the outcome of the information age is going to be. um, I know that's the 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 absolute nightmare with, with studying
0: social media as well, because it's such a hyper object and there's so many different strands to it. It's very difficult to isolate, you know, what's going on. There was an interesting distinction you made there between character and personality. Because one of the things that comes up in ethics, obviously, is the effect on character through habits over time. And so, like, if somebody's habitually Mm. distracted, being distracted can become, it's harder for you to pay attention to things. Um, So I wonder, how how would you define character relative to personality? Mm.
1: Oh, that's funny. I was just about to ask you how you would define character. <laughs> yeah, I
0: was wondering because there was a distinction there. Yeah, so I'm you, not. You, yeah, for me, I guess it's a, a difference between the personality traits or your tendencies, but it's sort of a it's not an ethical distinction. I mean, character for me is made up of your judgments and your actions. And um, so, I guess personality is a part of that, but I would look at it more as the a bit you have the awareness or regulation of in a. I suppose a, a moral okay, sense, or an ethical sense. Yeah,
1: I think the way that so character is not a concept that I use that I use in my work, um, yeah. but mm. people who use it uh, are often people who are working on uh, moral philosophy or moral psychology. That's usually, where it comes uh, because up. just historically, mm-hmm. the word character often refer as you say, it's like things that people have voluntarily voluntary control over aspects mm. of their judgments, uh, things that mm. we think reflect on their uh, moral qualities. Virtues and vices. Virtues, vices. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So that's, yeah, so that's often how character is used. Um, For myself, I would think of character then as just kind of, you know, some aspects of character we could describe as personality traits, like honesty. Uh, Honesty Mm. usually gets lumped in with character because it's so relevant morally. Um, But Mm -hmm. to me, uh, honesty is just another personality trait. Uh, it's just one that happens to be important from a moral perspective. You know, some people are more honest, some people are less honest, and I'm sure that's been true in every society in human history. Yeah. Um, but now the, the thing that you might be picking up on is this idea of characteristic adaptations uh, that I talk mm. about in yes. uh, some of my theoretical work. Um, mm-hmm. And there, uh, so characteristic is not, doesn't mean having to do with character in the sense of when we talk about character as these kinds of moral traits, uh, their characteristic just means whatever is uh, representative of you. You know, like if I say, "Oh, well, it's really characteristic of him that he would," uh, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, playing sports. And that is, uh, that's how I'm using the word characteristic. It just means like what is descriptive of you per- over time. So it's a way to describe some aspect of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason that we distinguish between personality traits and characteristic adaptations is that your adaptations are the way that you've adjusted to the circumstance of your specific life, right? your, your specific life circumstances. Um, and so, you know, something like, I, you know, I, I, if I really like to you know, play basketball and I spend I've always spent a lot of time playing basketball when I can, let's say. Um, that would be what we would call a characteristic adaptation. So it's part of my personality in the sense that it's a useful. It's something you could describe me, uh, mm-hmm. by using that. Um, mm-hmm. and it is something that I do persistently, you know, it's relatively stable, it's long term, uh, but it doesn't really fit the meaning of personality traits as we usually use it. So we wouldn't want to call that a trait, but we want to have some way of describing that as an important component of somebody's personality, but that they've learned a way that they've adapted to their situation. And so that's usually what I'm talking about when I'm talking about characteristic adaptations versus Mm -hmm. traits and um, and another word that works for characteristic adaptations is just habits, basically. Right. It's like your habits of thinking, your habits of acting um, that are based on this kinds of specific ideas or goals that you have or interpretations of your world rather than the more basic tendencies.
0: Yeah, that makes it. I mean, I'm thinking now. I suppose of personality disorders and the idea of uh, like psychopathology and its relationship to personality because that's definitely kind of a, I suppose a, with if social media promoted traits of psychopathology, like a lot of people say it increases narcissism. I don't know if there's any evidence for that, but or any you know actual studies on it. Um, but could you say then that yeah, if there was. I, I'm thinking of it in terms of regulation of social media, of algorithms, in a way that you could define to say this is a bad thing, it's creating this type of characteristic in people or this type of, you know, adaptation over time. Um, would that be something mm-hmm. that you think would be, yeah, viable?
1: Well, I, I think it's an important thing to, to study, right? And so, Ooh. you know, it might just be that people adapt in certain ways to these things, and that can be, you know... Well, that can be disruptive or annoying in and of itself. It's like when you're Mm -hmm. if you're out with a group of people, let's say, you know, you you go to a restaurant with a bunch of friends and uh, maybe there's a change now than from 20 years ago where back then you would have just been engaged with those people the whole time. Whereas now half the time, half the people are looking at their phones instead. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's a very different way to adapt to that kind of situation. And maybe we would decide, like, (laughs) we don't like that. Um, Yeah. And then, but then there's also the possibility that you alluded to that things that are a little bit more basic, like people's personality traits and general tendencies like might change, like if it really does increase narcissism uh, or Mm -hmm. if it really does make people or at least certain people more depressed. Um, And that, you know, so first of all, as I said earlier, this is social media is not my area of expertise. It's not something that I do research on. And so, Mm -hmm. like, I know that there are people doing research on it, and I know that there are people studying its effects on Mm -hmm. things like depression and narcissism. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where that research stands at the moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. My impression is that there isn't anything uh, that's Mm -hmm. really solidly demonstrated at this point, but I know that there's a lot of work being done on it. So, you know, it's one of those sort of uh, stay tuned kind of situations, (laughs) because I'm sure there will continue to be a lot of research being published on it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. And that's ongoing, I suppose. So to change track a little bit from the social media, I suppose, and to get in, to continue maybe on that, the topic of psychopathology, because I think it's something that's really interesting. I've always, ever since I was an undergraduate doing philosophy and I heard about uh, Thomas Zaz, the myth of mental illness, which actually really annoyed me when I heard about yeah. it, because I thought it felt like kind of a an affront or something. It felt very offensive and I got kind of emotional about it. But then once I actually read it and understood the argument, I kind of went, "Wow, there's a lot more going on here than I'd given a credit for." And I know that's something that in your work you're really kind of expanding on in a way that's fascinating. I'm I wonder if you had any thoughts on that and like the concept of you know mental health and psychopathology.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that, and and it, Thomas Slaus is very interesting. I, I think two things are true. First of all, that he doesn't get enough credit for the Kind of subtlety uh, and insight of what he was talking about and what he was saying, um, but second, also that he uh, he went overboard in that direction. In yeah, he threw the baby that, out with the bathwater. Uh, didn't he? Mental illness. Yeah, he threw the baby out with the bathwater. You might say, with the idea hmm. that uh, mental illness is fundamentally uh, socially constructed and based only on uh, you know the values of the society that decides who is mentally ill or not. Um, yeah. And I, so I definitely would not go to that extent, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people's experience and who is judged to be well or not. Uh, there's obviously a lot that uh, that is socially constructed about that. Um, mm-hmm. But I think fundamentally at base, there are ways in which people can experience dysfunction in which they cease to be able to uh, get the things that they need and want in life and Uh, To say that that to deny that that is some kind of uh, uh, of an illness that might needed that might benefit from uh, intervention uh, or or treatment um, seems misguided to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's 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 very interesting because we're just sort of pulled between these two extremes. Right. On the one hand, you have the the myth of mental illness, the kind of uh, the size approach to things. Um, but then on the other side, you have the current uh, obsession with the idea that if we can only understand what's going wrong in people's brains, uh, then we will know exactly uh, who is and who isn't mentally ill and we'll know how to treat it. Yes. And I don't think that that is a useful way to approach it either, because fundamentally what we're talking about with mental illness uh, is, not, uh, is not brain disease, it's a behavioral problem. Uh, in, in, in most cases, there are, there are exceptions, right? So, if you look at something like Alzheimer's, for example, I was just talking to, uh, with one of my uh, friends and colleagues about this a couple of days ago, Roman Kotov, um, and he was talking about the fact that if you look at the very first report of uh, Alzheimer's, you know, more than a hundred years ago, uh, they. Uh, there's, case report and uh, after death there's an autopsy and they see the general uh, reduction in the atrophy of the brain and the the plaques and tangles they're characterizing these very same uh, physiological features and disruptions of the brain that we are still talking about as at the root of uh, alzheimer's today so that clearly is something that you can describe as a brain disease right the psychological dysfunction follows from a particular uh, you know, pathogenic process. Well, pathogen, well, okay, that's still debatable. We don't know exactly how the sequence of, about, of events comes about that produces uh, Alzheimer's in the brain, but we know a lot of the physiological processes that are involved. Um, and so there is a, there's an obvious physical uh, physical pathology there. Mm-hmm. But you take something like schizophrenia, uh, which was, you know, the basic features of that, whether it was called schizophrenia or dementia, uh, precox, those were also described you know, over a hundred years ago, at this point, um, and although we know certain things that are uh, correlated with risk for schizophrenia in terms of brain function, uh, we do not have any clear specific marker or understanding of what goes on in people's brains who are schizophrenic uh, versus who are who aren't. Well, and and in fact, even the the category schizophrenia is problematic as well. We could get into that, but that's kind of an, another issue. But Uh, regardless of that issue with diagnosis, like psychosis is a real phenomenon. Uh, People have hallucinations, they have delusions, they lose touch with an accurate modeling of uh, reality, and that causes them severe uh, problems and dysfunction, right? And so we need to know what to do about that. Uh, And I don't think we want to say merely that that is, you know, that that we don't consider that a, a disease or a disorder merely because society doesn't value it. Right, so that's why Saz's approach is uh, fundamentally wrong in some way. Very limiting. yeah, and very uh, extreme. <laughs> but at the same time, <laughs> very extreme. Yeah, but at the same time, it's not clear that there is a single uh, neurobiological process or problem that is responsible for schizophrenia. I, it's makes more sense probably to think about it in terms of what is the kind of information processing that the brain has to do? Uh, what are the kinds of uh, models and you know, control processes that it enacts and how do those functions go wrong? Now, some of those functions may be more likely to go wrong if you have certain types of uh, brain characteristics. And so we can think of these biological features as risk factors. Um, But that's not the same as saying that the disease itself is just a disorder of the brain in the way that Alzheimer's is. So I think there's always going to be a place for uh, the psychological description of psychological medicine. It's like, yes, obviously, the brain is what carries out psychological functions. But you can have a brain that is reasonably healthy in terms of like it's within the range of the normal range of human variation. uh, But it's still functioning badly and going wrong in various ways that might be related to you know, mood disorders, depression or psychotic disorders, yep. and schizophrenia or ADHD or, or whatever else. Uh, they're not uh, exactly brain diseases. But, and yeah. Brain diseases and I, I saw to in, to think about if that. I
0: understand correctly with the um, some of the uh, with your work that you've done on well-being and um, that there's a connection there between the mental illness or the experience of mental illness and your goals not being met you're not being properly ordered or being met that your kind of model of reality is outdated and so you're experiencing this kind of i know a lot of people that go into therapy experience feeling stuck or feeling like they're kind of you know they can't get to the next bit and you're kind of then undergo a period of education and a reinvention to get to the next level and that medicalizing that process might actually be a mistake when it's actually something else does that seem
1: yes well i mean fair? medicalizing in the sense of uh treating it as a as a purely physiological problem i yes. mean we can talk about behavioral medicine right you can argue that going to a going to a therapist and uh, talking about your problems and talking about strategies to address them and things like Is you know, about behavioral therapy uh, or you know acceptance and commitment therapy all these different you, yep. i I don't see any reason to say that that's not medicine I think that is medicine But I think what you're okay. talking about is like the the tendency to say any complaint that you have uh, Well, here's we will throw some pills at it, right? It's like if we can only yeah, just get the right combination of uh, Like <laughs> of neurotransmitters if we can just get the right drugs into you then all your problems be will fine, be solved yeah. and that's clearly not uh, Not the case yeah. um, That's clearly not how it works. I mean, which is not to say that uh, pharmaceuticals don't help some people because they do, but it's very unpredictable whom they're going to help. Like we do not have, you know, a psychiatrist might like to give the impression that we sort of have this list. And it's like, if you have this problem, we give you this drug. But in fact, it's more like, you know, for this long list of problems, we also have this long list of drugs and we can kind of sort of randomly match them up. Uh, and see what helps and for some people some of them help and for some people others help and for some of the people none of the ones that we have help Um, Mm -hmm. and you know that is really indicative of the fact that uh well at some level that we you know we don't know what we're doing biologically and i say that like i study the neurobiology of personality and uh, mental disorders that's the main focus of my research and because of that i know how uh, limited our current knowledge is of those things mm-hmm. so far in terms of, you know, the brain basis of them, mm-hmm.
0: and that that's kind of yeah. I mean, and so yeah, To get sorry, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was interrupting you.
1: Oh, I just wanted to get back to your because you asked this question about goals, yeah. and I think that that yep. is really important mm-hmm. um, because fundamentally all organisms are uh, goal-directed systems. The word cybernetic refers to that idea that. Uh, some systems are organized in such a way that they pursue goals based on uh, you know, feedback. Uh, they get feedback and they can adjust their behavior based on that feedback in order to pursue various goals. Uh, and so those goals would not only be, you know, for people are not only kind of concrete things like, you know, I don't know, I want to get a promotion at work or something, but they're also these things that are more like fundamental basic needs. Like I want to have a connection to other people and good relationships, um, or I want to you know, feel good about myself and I don't want to spend a lot of time feeling negative emotions. Those are goals too, right? And uh, I think that a a very strong case can be made that all mental illness is fundamentally defined by uh, people having an inability to pursue their goals effectively. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can be partly because uh, they have a model of the world that's uh, wrong in some way. Or inaccurate in some way, but it can also be because they have an inappropriate set of goals. Right? They may have a collection of goals, you know, values, needs, whatever you want to call them, uh, that don't fit well together with each other. That have various conflicts in them, so they simply cannot all be, uh, you know, met at once. Mm-hmm. And so I think you know the job of mental health practitioners is. Fundamentally, to try to get people to a place where they have a working set of uh, you know, interpretations of themselves in the world that, and, and skills and strategies that allow them to pursue a reasonably well-integrated and effective set of goals. Um, you know, and Sometimes giving somebody a pill is going to put their brain into a different state that allows them to achieve that kind of self-regulation and, and sure, balance, sure. Um, but it's probably not the only thing they need because there's always this additional question of what should i do like how should i act in the world uh, what should i think about things that is not purely a you know uh, yeah physiological that, question let's say. that was zaz's
0: yeah. point i suppose was that he described them as problems in living um that it was always yes, yeah which is
1: a good description
0: yeah and that there's a lot of i mean I suppose for a lot of young people, a lot of the reason I'm interested in social media as well is because of the associated mental health problems that it is said to cause. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence about young women and self-harm and the massive issues there that are kind of being perpetrated by what's called an antisocial algorithm or an algorithm that promotes this type of behavior. But um, that might be a bit off the subject. But with goals, I mean, so then if a person's experiencing this kind of distress or negative emotion... Would you advise them to? I mean, it depends on the context, but should they be looking for a goal or for the conflict in their goals? Would that be a kind of a starting point if somebody's looking to kind of make sense of this? It?
1: Yeah, it's certainly a wise thing to sort of take stock of. Like, what is it mm. that you want? What are the things that you value? Um, and, you know, to recognize that. Sometimes the solution is to figure out a better strategy to get the things that you already value, but sometimes it's to rethink what you're valuing and maybe to change your values instead.
0: To let go of something or to pursue something else. and
1: Let go of something, to pursue something else, yeah, to to change your, your standards for what success means in a particular domain, for example. You know, it's like maybe uh, you have a particular set of values about how you want your career to go. But you also have a particular set of values about what you want your family life to be like. Right. Uh, and, you know, some for many people, those things are difficult to uh, to reconcile. Mutually exclusive. Yeah. And, you know, they're both they're both demanding on, on your time and your resources. Right. And so, you know, one thing that you might do is say, well, I'm not going to just, I don't necessarily need to completely give up my career or change it entirely, but maybe I just have a different set of standards for what counts as success there. Mm. You know, Maybe it's not about uh, being like, you know, like earning the maximum amount of money possible or achieving the maximum amount of success or fame or whatever it is, the thing that you're pursuing in your particular career. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's about figuring out how you can adjust your values uh, so that, even without radical change, you sort of might change the standards for what you think of as success.
0: And there's a fascinating through line there, which it just reminded me of. I mean, you'd mentioned CBT and the... The basis of CBT comes from Stoicism. I actually had Donald Robertson. I don't know if you know him. He's a CBT professor, but he writes about Stoicism a lot. Um, Really great guy, man. Fascinating thought. But his argument was exactly that, really, that why Stoicism was getting so popular was because it changed people's values. It gave them... He described it that it was sticky because, like, CBT would give people techniques, but Stoicism had this kind of worldview. It told you what was valuable, what wasn't valuable. Like, don't be... Don't prize mm-hmm. things that are outside of your control, like status, health, reputation. These kind of things are, you know, outside of your sphere of influence. So you'll distress yourself, basically, if you're trying to hold on to them. Um I'd never heard you talk about stoicism before. I don't know if it's something that you're interested in, or if you had any thoughts uh, it, on it. But it, well, I, yeah. you know,
1: I, I have a general interest in philosophy, but for whatever reason, yeah. stoicism is not something that I've uh, read much about. So I just don't, mm. I don't know much about it. It seems really. Uh, but yeah. what you were saying mm. there actually reminded me, reminded me of uh, some of the points that are made by uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, or ACT. I, I don't know if you've encountered yeah. that. I've heard of it. Uh, mm-hmm. He's one of the. Po- They make this point that that they have a very similar criticism of cbt which is that it's essentially directed at these very specific strategies um that well okay so first of all it's just not necessarily addressing these larger issues of what people value uh and Mm -hmm. second of all it is kind of focused on this model of the mind as if it was sort of like a you know you receive information and then and then you process it as opposed to noticing, like, what are the points where you can actually intervene? Right. It's not just all going on inside your head. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's it can be, you know, it's like it's fine to say somebody like, well, don't catastrophize. Right. This is a common thing. It's like when something bad (laughs) happens, don't (laughs) uh, immediately assume that. um, You know, that this means everything is ruined and that it's going to spiral out of control, right, because that's a common pattern for people who suffer from anxiety. And, And so then you think, well, okay. Uh, that's great advice, but how? How do you do that? How do you not <laughs> catastrophize, right? And that's where, yeah. I mean, you know, there are various ways in which CB5, uh, CBT has, you know, has strategies. But um, the point that, A- that ACT makes is that there are more active ways in which you can help people to uh, engage with their environment that then allow them to make those kind of changes more effectively, uh, and this is, ti- you know, it's tied into the whole movement you know, toward uh, paying attention to mindfulness uh, yep. in contemporary uh, psychological thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the the idea of acceptance and commitment therapy is this idea that you need to basically be able to uh, pay attention to the uh, way in which you are evaluating things in your ongoing experience uh, and, you know, basically like figure out what you are Larger values are, and uh, and and commit yourself to them. And I, I also, first of all, I should say I'm doing a, I'm doing a, a very kind of like shallow and simplistic job of of explaining this. So if people are interested, I re- recommend going. Yeah, out, I find it super it, interesting. My say so, um, mm. but but just you know the the basic idea being that if you give people this kind these kinds of uh, tools on what to pay attention to and how to pay attention. Mm. then that will enable them to make these kinds of more specific shifts that if you just tell them to make the shift, like don't catastrophize, they don't necessarily have the tools to implement that effectively. There's a skill,
0: and it's kind of coming back to attention, which is really interesting to previous kind of loop, um, which is that there's a skill there in what you should pay attention to, because there's always something I noticed studying the ethics of attention with a guy called Sebastian Watzel. He kind of puts the ethics of attention down to the regulation of salience, like a person that finds something uh, really aggressive, really salient would reflect poorly on their character. If they really, you know, enjoyed cruel things or something like that, that would be poor for them. But that there's this quality to attention of where you should put it and where not to put it. So like, and that that's somehow fundamental to healthy functioning as well. It seems, or to your well being. Like with stoicism, they'd say like, don't pay attention to the things, or don't prize the things. Maybe don't value so much the things that are outside of your control because. They might you know things will happen to them, and you don't own that, and you're not going to be able to deal with it um so this management of attention and um being able to kind of fulfill your values is interesting um i don't yeah i I don't know where I was going with that, but it's kind of a tangent um no, it, yeah.
1: I mean I think but it, again you you get then you get to the question of how do you train people how to direct their mm. attention, right? Again, it's sort sure. of like the, the problem with don't catastrophize. It's like, well, don't pay attention to that. Well, how, how do you do that? I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I uh, so sometime, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, I installed uh, web blocking software on <laughs> my computer so that yeah. I could create a list of, you know, websites that I can not visit for like, I can yeah. set it to for like two hours, four hours, eight hours, whatever. Nice. And that's because, you know, it's annoying that the tool that I use for all of my work is also where all of the distractions are, right? Uh, so it's, <laughs> yeah. like it's very hard to, to get yeah. away from that. Um, and, you know, but, and, the, and coming back to this idea of monetizing attention and the, the, all these uh, you know, clever algorithms that are designed to mm-hmm. hook people, it's like, how do you fight back against that, right? And so well there are, these kind of, there are external tools like a software that just doesn't let you go to all of the stupid websites that you're going to waste time on, Um, but, you know, then there are these kinds of strategies like, uh, mindfulness, right? Where you engage in practices that actually improve your ability to control your attention. Not, so not just saying like, don't pay attention to that, but like, here's a practice to engage in that will help you control your attention in whatever way you want. And then when you encounter the idea, like, well, don't pay attention to that, then you might actually have some of the skills necessary to follow through on that.
0: And that you can't, yeah, like you can't tell people what to pay attention to, but you can tell them that it's important for them to pay attention to what they pay attention to, in a sense. I remember John Verveke, yeah. yeah, making an argument that's like, you can't tell people what's virtuous, but you can tell them that it's important to pay attention to virtue for the, the process by which they try and figure that out. Um,
1: Right, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it, right? And it, it, it gets at this idea that, what you're trying to do is give people the skills to adapt themselves and that if, if they know what will make their own lives go better uh, and what will make them more effective, then that is likely to motivate them toward, you know, toward uh, better values and better situations.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's such a kind of essential skill. It kind of reminds me of so I there was something I was meaning to ask you about, which is conscientiousness, which is something I think um, I had wondered with the distraction technology, I suppose, because a big part of conscientiousness is suppressing distractions. It's I don't know if that's correct, but that's kind of the way I'd interpret it. Um, oh yes,
1: that is right. Yeah, was, that's that a
0: huge part of it. So key. with tons of distracting technologies, you know, does it? offer some sort of threat to conscientiousness like Andrew Huberman had said uh in one of his podcasts I was listening to he said um that the mark of a mature or of an adult is being able to control your behavior as from like uh his kind of biological point of view a mature organism controls its behavior and we have technologies that specifically overcome our ability to control our behavior um and so I wonder is there a threat to conscientiousness could improving you know your conscientiousness could that protect you against these type of things a bit more
1: yes (laughs) yeah i agree with i i agree with everything that you just said Um, variation in conscientiousness is certainly going to have a lot to do with whether you are able to uh you know to fend off distractions and whether you're able to regulate your own behavior effectively especially in relation to you know, longer-term goals or more mm. abstract goals, um, and uh, anything that makes it harder to control your attention or to avoid distractions is a threat to conscientiousness. Uh, and you know, every person has their own level of conscientiousness that's kind of going to you know set the the threshold for where they're overwhelmed. You know, for where sure. they can no longer resist these mechanisms of external control. Um, mm. And so, either, either figuring out ways to improve conscientiousness or reducing these kind of external threats to it are mm-hmm. likely to be beneficial to people. Yeah, improvements. Uh, and increasingly, yeah. in personality psychology, there's this uh, movement toward trying to uh, trying to develop protocols that facilitate personality change. Yeah. In other words, mm-hmm. like. For a long time, we thought about these kinds of interventions only in the case of really clinical, clinically severe problems. Mm-hmm. But with the recognition that, first of all, most clinical problems are on a continuum with normal personality va- variation, they're just sort of more ex- extreme and you know, maladaptive versions, uh, then, uh, and also just the fact that most people have at least one personality trait that they want to change. That's one of the findings from the last 20 yep. years of personality research. Uh, there's this recognition that well maybe we can actually develop interventions that will allow people to uh, begin to change their personality traits in a more uh, sort of voluntary, voluntary and directed manner. Yeah, uh, and of course mm. you know conscientiousness is one of the things that many people would like to increase in themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's so I mean amazing. That was something I'd really thought about with. Um, like in terms of social media algorithms affecting people's behavior and stuff, but how you could use that properly to affect personality change, like curating content for people if they wanted to be more, you know, conscientious. Could you have an algorithm that curates content for them that will help them improve that? And it might not be that simple, but is there any programs that you know that do increase conscientiousness or that have been proven to actually increase it? Or is it still vague at the moment?
1: Well, I think we're in pretty early days of the development of these uh, intervention protocols um, mm. for personality change. So, you know, I mean, for myself, so I, I struggled with relatively low conscientiousness when I was younger. And, uh, you know, when I was a grad student, I sort of realized I had to figure out how to work more effectively because I was you know, going into this Me too. <laughs> I think career or my aspirations anyway, were to be in a career that is very self-directed right? and self-motivated. And, um, you know, so for me, like part of it was just about figuring out various ways that, I, you know, I wasted time. I remember one time, one period of time in grad school, I was so frustrated with how much time I seem to waste that I started keeping a diary in like 15 minute increments uh, every (laughs) day. Like, what am I doing? Because I was trying to figure out where's all this time going that I'm wasting, you know? Um, and so partly it's that kind of like, again, which I guess is one way of thinking about controlling attention, right? It's not like what you pay attention to, but learning skills of how to pay attention and what things to pay attention to. Um, and then, you know, and, but it, so it was not just that. It was also just thinking about, like, what really were my priorities? What were my values? Um, when I was uh, when I was younger, I sort of thought of like, well, you want to have a career because you need to make uh, you, need, you need to earn a living. And well, it should be interesting because, of course, you want to do something interesting. Um, but other than that, it's just like a way to give yourself the resources to then do what you really want to do, which is just, you know, like have a good time or, you know, hang out with friends or relax or fool around or whatever it is, you know, that you're doing that's. Uh, sort of more frivolous or hedonistic or whatever um and i at some point i realized like well that's not sustainable in terms of this career because it requires so much um sort of concentrated and self-directed effort that's the thing so you can you work at a job where somebody else is telling you exactly what to do um you know then it's relatively easy to do it you say well i got to do this by tomorrow but if you have a job where like there's no clear deadlines and there's, there's no, no one telling you exactly what to do. You have to figure all that out for yourself. I mean, I like it much better. I, I, I enjoy being self-directed, but it was also very difficult for me. Um, mm-hmm. And I had, uh, I, I've known people, I had friends in grad school who it was, even though they were very smart, very capable, it, that aspect of it was too much for them. And they went into, uh, you know, jobs in jobs in industry, jobs in other areas that were not academic for precisely that reason. It's like, because I just want to have a nine to five job and be able to forget about it when I go home and have a clear sense of of what I'm doing. And that's great. Like maybe it's about like finding the kind of environment that actually works for you. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, for me, it was just like I had to change my goals around. So it wasn't just like, well, I want to, be successful here, so that I can have a good time. It's like no, my primary goal is going to be uh, being a, a, a good psychologist, you know, and being a good scientist. Um, and so that's that gives you the sense of the way that when, if you can change your values effectively and change your sort of basic uh, sense of I- self and identity, that can then kind of flow downward to organize your more specific behaviors. Sounds uh, like one of those letting so, go you know, moments sort of like as change, well. Change, yeah, exactly. It's like well, if there's cha- you can have change at every level of the goal hierarchy, right? You can have change at these very high levels about like your broad values and broad aims. Uh, you can have change at lower levels, like about how you allocate your attention, your attention, and uh, you know what you kind of. Uh, you know strategies for avoiding distraction, but then it can be this very concrete, like I mentioned. Uh, you know, web blocking software, right? You can ha- you can. Why not adopt <laughs> yeah. technological solutions that help you to do things that you have difficulty with doing uh, without help?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah and it's I mean I wonder I I guess it might just be that simple in terms of that if you value the conscientiousness enough or the discipline enough that you'll start to act it out and that that in itself can be the the catalyst or the transformation um it's certainly a fascinating topic i feel like the 21st century is going to be the age of self control because we just have so much more opportunity for yeah it distracting ourselves, yeah. I mean, I hope it is, but um, it could go the other way. But um, thank you very much, Colin. That was really, <laughs> I mean, fascinating. And we managed to somehow get all the way around what was a, a very cumbersome topic. So I really appreciate the, the way you handled it and just yeah, the great. great answers. Thank you,
1: thank you,
0: thanks a lot. Yeah, it's nice to talk to you. Woo-hoo! I hope you enjoyed that chat with Colin de Young. Uh, if you want to stay in touch and keep getting the podcast, click that follow button. Follow us along on Instagram or subscribe on YouTube for the video podcast and stay in touch. Bo!